Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Buenos días. La lectura esta mañana se encuentra en Mateo 3, versículos 13 al, 13 al 17. Un día Jesús fue de Galilea al Jordán para que Juan lo bautizara, pero Juan trató de disuadirlo. Yo soy el que necesita ser bautizado por ti, y tú vienes a mí, objetó. Dejémoslo así por ahora, pues nos conviene cumplir con lo que es justo, le contestó Jesús. Entonces Juan consintió. Tan pronto como Jesús fue bautizado, subió del agua. En ese momento se abrió el cielo y él vio al Espíritu de Dios bajar como una paloma y posarse sobre él. Y una voz del cielo decía, este es mi hijo amado, estoy muy complacido con él. Last week we started a new sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament. And so for the next several months, we're going to be studying the life of Jesus, who he was and what he came to do. Maybe for some of you, it'll be a new look for the first time, perhaps for some of you, uh, a fresh look, uh, maybe just a, a, a fresh retelling of these different stories and passages and teachings that'll be for your good. During the Advent and Christmas season just last month, we focused a lot of uh, time and attention on the birth of Jesus, which was recorded in the second half of chapter one of Matthew, as well as chapter two. And so we're going to skip ahead today to chapter three, to the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. So let's take a look at this passage, but let me first pause and pray. Let's pray. God, we're asking now that you would bless this time. We know that you already have it in your mind, in your heart, precisely what you want to accomplish here. So we're not sort of swimming in a sea of uncertainty. We're, we're simply living out what you have already purposed to take place in our hearts in this room so we pray that you would do that. And you would use this humble, sort of modest time of engaging with your scriptures, but you would do something extraordinary, changing our lives, changing our church, and through us, changing our neighborhood even. We know you can do that. Why? Because we believe in the Holy Spirit. So come now, Spirit of God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This week, next year, we'll be celebrating another Inauguration Day. It's coming up, coming up quick. 
The White House will be home to a new family. A new president will be sworn into office on the Capitol's front steps amidst great fanfare, pomp, and circumstance. And there's really nothing like it in our city if you've been a part of an inauguration in the past. Of course, every time I personally think about inaugurations, I always and always will think about our adventures attending President Obama's first inaugural seven years ago. Of course, that was when an unprecedented number of visitors just streamed in from across the country, actually literally from around the world. Hundreds of thousands of people just packed in, squeezed in, squashed in onto the mall to be a part of this historic occasion. I don't know how many of you were there. It was bitterly cold. Was it in the teens, maybe the 20s? cold, cold day with a nice little wind chill. And so, of course, Paula and I decided to jump into that frigid national mosh pit. Thought it would be fun, thought it would be participating in history, right? But the thing that stands out to me most is just how obvious it was that we had no idea, no idea how crowded it was going to be. I mean, you heard the rumors And you heard the warnings, but the biggest sign of our ignorance was that we brought with us a blanket and a book. I mean, almost as if we were going to sort of spread out like a picnic, right, and sort of take our time and hang around some friends loosely scattered across the National Mall. We were in there like sardines. I mean, we had no clue. I mean, I'm surprised we didn't bring a pillow for a nap and a volleyball net, right? I mean, that's how clueless we were. Paula and I always chuckle about that, how funny it was, and how amazing that experience was that day. Speaking of inauguration. The short little story we're looking at today from the life of Jesus is sort of the story of his inauguration. Jesus has been laying low for about 30 years, simply living and loving and learning. Uh, Finally, he emerges onto the public scene. As verse 13 says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. It's the first time that we've heard about him. It's the first time we've seen him in Matthew's account since his childhood, stories about his birth and his boyhood. Of course, this is a reference to the prophet John the Baptist. Jesus is here ready to begin his public ministry. He's ready to assume public office, as it were, ready to carry out his responsibilities as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. In fact, the voice from heaven in verse 17 reinforces this understanding of the event. Jesus is baptized by John. He comes out of the water. Then the Spirit of God descends on him. And then we're told an audible voice is heard from heaven. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And careful readers of that quotation have taken those words as an unmistakable echo of portions of the Old Testament. 
Isaiah 42, verse 1, where God addresses the promised suffering servant, also known as the Messiah. And Psalm 2, verse 7, which speaks about King David's promised son, one of his descendants, who would also be known as the Messiah. Listen to those passages. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. I have installed my king on Zion. You are my son. God is publicly announcing and approving the identity of his son as the promised savior. And his baptism serves as his messianic inauguration ceremony. It's a fascinating piece of scripture. But if you think about it, if you really think about it, it's an odd little ceremony, isn't it? A little strange. It would stand out that way to you, especially if you were an ancient reader, and especially if you understood that Jesus was purporting to be the king and the savior of the world. Because ancient kings, when they had their inaugurations, their coronation ceremonies, they really knew how to do it up. With all the pomp and circumstance that would make our ceremony down the street here look like child's play. It was a strange ceremony, and yet it was absolutely intentional. This quiet little scene at this small, globally speaking, completely irrelevant, unimportant little river. Not in a palace, not with a throne but in the muddy waters with this prophet who wore camel's hair and ate locust amongst people who were kind of this ragtag bunch of people who came with great penitence in their hearts. What was going on here? Jesus was very deliberately announcing something. He was very clearly telling us a little bit about what kind of Messiah, what kind of administration he was bringing, what kind of kingdom. In fact, it's the most important meaning of his baptism. Jesus was baptized to show his solidarity with sinners. Jesus was baptized to show his solidarity with morally ugly and spiritually broken people like you and me, sinners indeed. Solidarity. You see, what was John the Baptist's baptism all about? This ritual washing in the River Jordan. Earlier in this very chapter, Matthew tells us a little bit about it. Not printed, but in verse 1, we're told that John's message to the Jewish people boiled down to this. Repent, which is a word that simply means turn from your selfishness of sin. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then in verse 5, we're told 
that people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. When they were baptized, they were also giving narration to all the ways that they had failed to love God and love their neighbors as themselves. And in verse 11, when John is explaining the meaning of his baptism, he says explicitly to the crowds, I baptize you with water for repentance. In other words, when you came to John, when you came to the River Jordan, when you came to be dunked ceremonially and washed with water, you were publicly confessing that you were a sinner. You were publicly telling the world. You were publicly telling yourself. You were publicly telling God, I am one who needs a washing. I'm filthy within. My life needs to be turned around. And I can't clean myself up. It was a clear confession. It was a statement of your identity as a morally broken person before God, which is precisely why we have here in this story this awkward moment recorded in verse 14. Jesus comes to John to be baptized as such, and John says, what? Well, you came to the right place. That's why they call me John the Baptist, you know. You know, that's what we do here. No. No, 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 no. John, we're told, tried to deter him. And in the ancient Greek there, there's a verb form used that shows that this was a prolonged conversation. We only get a couple words of it. John was protesting. John was kind of arguing with Jesus because he didn't want to do it. And he said, we're told, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Because John knew that Jesus did not need a baptism of repentance. Because Jesus had no sin to repent of. That Jesus was made like every one of us in our humanity in every way, we're told in the book of Hebrews, except for sin. Because John knew that up to that point for the 30 years that Jesus had walked this earth, it's mind-boggling to try to get your mind around it, that Jesus had actually loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loved his neighbor as himself Absolutely, flawlessly, perfectly. I mean, we, we can't even imagine that. Not a single blemish on his moral record. Not a single slip-up, neither of what you might call a sin of commission or a sin of omission. What he did and what he didn't do, all of it was perfect love. As God has called all of us to live before God and one another. John knew that Jesus had not sinned and therefore he had no sins from which he needed to repent and therefore he need no ceremonial washing from sins which he had none of. 
that was the point. Because Jesus stood in the river and received baptism. Received this symbolic washing, dear friends. Not for his own sins, but for yours. That he stood probably literally amongst a crowd of ordinary people. He stood with them, and he was washed with them as a way of his showing his identification with them and with their sins. Teacher and author Sinclair Ferguson writes this, what we have here is Jesus' public acknowledgement that he had come to stand where sinners should stand receive what they should deserve, and in return, give to them his gift of grace and fellowship with God. Jesus' whole life and his whole ministry was about his solidarity with sinners. And it's unusual, isn't it? Most of us try to distance ourselves from bad company, spend a lot of energy separating ourselves from the crowds. We do that with people in our lives, especially when scandal hits or when failures emerge. Someone we work with or work for, and you start to step away whether with your words or sometimes literally. Or maybe a kid on your block gets in trouble and you pretend you don't really hang out with them all the time. Sometimes that's not a bad idea, but check it out. Jesus moves in the exact opposite direction. We dissociate with sinners. Jesus associates with sinners. This is Jesus sitting in jail with you. This is, morally and heavenly speaking, Jesus putting on the same orange jumpsuit that you are wearing. This is him saying, I will stand where you stand, and I will suffer the consequences that you suffer, and I will bear responsibility for the things which you actually are responsible for but refuse to take responsibility for. That's what I'm all about as your Savior. And it's so different from our displays of solidarity even when we do show solidarity. You see people standing side by side with refugees, rightly so. When the terrorist attacks in Paris happened on social media, it was a common thing for people to change their profile pictures with a filter showing the colors of the French flag behind them as a demonstration of connection and support with the French people. Yes, these are displays of standing with, but Notice, please, that typically in those demonstrations of solidarity, they are for people we consider 
deserving of our support. They deserve respect. They do. And so we give it. Or they deserve recognition of their dignity. They deserve compassion and care as fellow human beings, people made in the image of God. They deserve it. And so we give it. Here's a different kind of solidarity, one that Jesus offers. Jesus shows solidarity for the undeserving. It's why we call it grace, which is another word simply for a gift. He doesn't stand there in the river and receive these waters and identify with your sinnerhood and your sins because you deserve it, but quite the opposite. He does it because of his mercy, because of unmerited, unearned kindness that you can't demand or bank on, but only receive gladly with an open, humbled heart that says, Jesus, how could you love me so? Here's how one commentator summarized the meaning of Jesus' baptism. I thought it was helpful. Let me read it to you. When Jesus came to be baptized by John, he joined the queue of sinners waiting to be baptized. It was a mighty act of solidarity. He was identifying with the kind of people he came to save, namely sinners. He was, in effect, saying to them, I am on your side, your side. He would seek them out and befriend them. He would not put himself above those whom he came to save. He placed himself, rather, among them. If this is Jesus' inauguration as Messiah, then this act is also Jesus' inauguration speech. A speech without words. I have come in solidarity with sinners. Solidarity with you. And of course, this act of sacrificial solidarity finds its ultimate fulfillment in the cross of Christ. In fact, there's few clear previews of what Jesus would one day do that we find throughout the Gospel of Matthew, even the whole Bible, than what we find here in this moment, his baptism. You see, Jesus' solidarity with us ran so deep, so deep, so personally, so intensely, so infinitely, that he didn't just identify with sinners, he was slain instead of sinners. He didn't just put the orange jumpsuit on, he climbed into your seat in the electric chair. When Jesus mounted the cross, he suffered not for his own sins, but for mine and for yours for all those who would embrace him as such a savior. He suffered as a substitute, 
as one who would stand in our place, one who would take all the punishment, the consequences for selfishness that every single one of us deserve, but that he would take it in our place freely as a gift in order to offer us forgiveness and life. Because if he's taken the hit, you and I no longer need to. Not for any one of our sins, past, present, or future, if we've embraced the Savior who shows solidarity for sinners. In closing, I simply want to point out two quick applications. Number one, we should therefore embrace his solidarity with sinners. Embrace it. Embrace him. And by that, what I mean is that you understand that he did this for you because it's what you deserve. That you would see yourself as one standing in the river yourself as one who openly and humbly and honestly and perhaps publicly confesses that you indeed are someone that needs a deep washing? Have you recently, friends, with tears of grief and tears of joy, said, I am filthy? Stained by self-centered thoughts, words, and deeds. Stained by a habit of putting myself before every person around me, and most especially before the person of God himself. Stained by the filth of my own heart and words and deeds. To embrace his solidarity is to grow in repentance. And don't you see, when you actually see the Savior, not standing apart from you, but right in there with you, it invites you to be more honest. You start to see him as a king of grace. He's one that does not scorn you in your moral weakness, but draws near to you. He does not cast you off, he draws you in. He's willing to forego the condemnation that you deserve, but rather to lift you up as new creation. He wants to give you who deserve death, life, resurrection, life. And if he is this way, if that is him, does it not invite you maybe finally to be honest, to be more honest, to be quicker to the punch, to say, I was wrong. I was wrong. I'm filthy. I need the waters of Christ. I need to be washed. I need someone to stand in my place. I need forgiveness. And so do you then see yourself as one that needs forgiveness? Have you received his forgiveness lately? Because you see, the grace of God is such that the goal is not simply to subject you to guilt over your sin, but rather to give you grace that exalts you to the glory of joy for the forgiveness of your sins. 
If Christ has shown solidarity with you, and you by faith find yourself in solidarity with him, dear sinning Christian brother and sister, will you believe today your sins are forgiven? Hallelujah. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Because some of us are in such a habit of just sort of letting that promise, this glory. It's not the only thing that Christ purchased for us, but it is an essential thing. Just this promise that you are forgiven, that the guilt of your sin are counted against you no longer, is something that you sort of just nod at, and you're sort of like, yeah, of course it's true. But you don't savor it. You don't believe it. You don't take in the pardon of Christ. You don't meditate on the promises of Psalm 103 that as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed your transgressions from his sight. He can't see them anymore. He remembers them no more. But Romans 8, 1, there's that now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because your sins have been paid for and paid in full. And there's even better news. There's even better news than this. Can you believe it? That this grand pronouncement that Jesus himself heard from heaven, that as he rose from the waters of baptism, and heaven declares from the mouth of God the Father himself, with the affirmation of the descending of the Holy Spirit upon him, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, this is my son whom I love, in whom I love, in whom I am well pleased, that if Jesus stands in your place in that river, and if you embrace his solidarity with you, then, dear friends, you need to hear those words being pronounced over you, too. That what you have in Christ is not only, if we could put it that way, only the forgiveness of all of your sins, but also the affirmation of God the Father that you have been made a beloved child of the King, that you've been brought into his family, esteemed as one who is precious in his sight. That you've won not only legal status in God's kingdom, you can't get kicked out. You are a citizen in his kingdom, but you are also a member of his family close to the Father's heart. You've won his affection in him, in you, God is well pleased. Do you hear it, dear friends? Some of you need to let these words wash over you 
and hear your God pronounce them over you. You are my son, my daughter, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. Do you hear it? Do you hear him? Embrace Jesus' solidarity with sinners. Is there some area of forgiveness in your life that is just too hard for you to believe? Some area where you are just not letting in the grace of God, where it just feels maybe it's too good to be true, you're afraid to believe. Will you embrace his solidarity with sinners? Will you also finally and very all too quickly extend his solidarity to others? Embrace it, but also extend it to others. It's a good time to consider the ways in which Christ's union with us also gives us grace to extend ourselves to other people. Perhaps worth considering, especially this weekend, as we consider racial barriers that separate us one from another. That the solidarity of Christ with us gives us grace, motivation, and joy to extend ourselves into the lives of people that are not like us, especially for those who also confess the name of Christ, to see them first and foremost as brother and sister in Christ, and to be able to love one another, to learn to see each other through one another's eyes, that we, whether black or Asian or white or Latino or some mix or combination of the different expressions of the glory of the face of Christ in each of us, that together we might be one in Christ, sharing this solidarity that we have with one another, but also and perhaps especially as related to this passage, solidarity with those who are hurting, to those who are making mistakes, to those who are, in fact, like you, sinners, but where you find yourself drawing near, where you extend mercy and kindness to those who are guilty, in fact, to those who maybe deserve punishment, or even your wrath, learning to love your enemies, learning to show mercy to those who oppose you, whether to your face or passive-aggressively in the workplace or in social media, what does it look like for us to extend ourselves to those who are guilty? To those who maybe naturally speaking you have no business uniting yourself with. And yet this is what Jesus did with you and with me. Extend such solidarity to those around you. Embrace his solidarity as we come to know the mystery of what Christ has done again. He was identifying with the people he came to save, namely sinners. He was, in effect, saying to them, to you and me, I am on your side. He would seek you out and befriend you. He would not put himself above you, 
whom he came to save, he placed himself among you as our Messiah, our Savior, the one who displayed solidarity with sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would show us how to live in light of you and that we would most of all see you, the one who identified with us in all of our brokenness and need, that we would humble ourselves and rejoice before you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.